Amen. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter seven, uh, 27, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 34. The passage today deals with Judas' remorse and Jesus' resolve. We're in Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life. It's commonly referred to as Holy Week. And um, this passage will lead right up to the crucifixion of Christ. We have two more chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. In a sense, the whole Gospel of Matthew has come to this. What Matthew has done is he's written to a Jewish audience to present Jesus Christ to them as their long-awaited prophesied Messiah. And it's all coming to a climax. We're here in the last week of Jesus' life. You remember last time Jesus was taken into an illegal nighttime trial. And the religious authorities were trying to get all these different witnesses to come and say something about Jesus that would warrant death. And nobody's stories, you know, lined up. But finally, they had two witnesses that came forth and said that Jesus was a blasphemer, that he said he was going to destroy the temple of God. And that's, they got him on blasphemy, uh, blasphemy. And they asked him, they said, are you the son of God? And he says, it is as you say. And so they, they said, we don't have any need for any further witnesses. He's a blasphemer. He's to die. Now, that was an illegal trial. They were doing this at nighttime, which the Jews were not to have trials at nighttime. It's, it's illegal in its nature. And also, when you're dealing with a trial, a capital trial, trying to put somebody to death, that also had to be done in the daylight in front of the congregation. And so everything about the nighttime trial was illegal. And so that brings us to the point where that right here, verse 1 says, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So that nighttime trial being legal, we pick it up in the morning. And so now they're going to bring legitimacy to the whole thing, and they're going to have a morning uh, trial. They've determined Jesus is deserving of death, but the Jews have no power legally to bring it about. They need the Roman government. All this takes place in the Roman Empire. You understand that, right? Jerusalem is part of the Roman Empire, and Rome has rule over everything. So the Jews are not able to put somebody to death. They need Rome to do that. So They've already decided Jesus is, you know, they want to kill him. And now they need Pontius Pilate, the governor, to, uh, you know, hear this case against him and to pronounce the death penalty upon him. Now, Pontius Pilate, he's the Roman governor at this time over Samaria and Judea. Pilate's home was in Caesarea, but at this festival time, you know, we're in the time of the Passover, he had a palace that he would be in in Jerusalem. Office was called a, a procurator. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. Is it procurator? Procurator? Yeah, procurator. I knew it was one of those. Thank you. That office is a Roman military office. And by the time of Pilate, it developed into an incredibly powerful visit, uh, position. They had control over whole uh, countries under the Roman system. And Pilate then could issue death. Uh, death warrants. He could put people to death. He could um, have coins struck in his name amongst a whole other thing. It was an incredibly power pos uh, powerful position this guy's in. And so they need him. Verse 3 now, 
You guys remember Judas, right? Everybody knows Judas. He's the one that sold uh, Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And so now we pick it up with what's going on with Judas, verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, Jesus' betrayer, that is, (laughs) seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and they brought with them, bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. That field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So you guys remember, Judas was the one that sold Jesus out. And the Bible never really tells you what his motive was. Um, but the fact that he's remorseful as he's seeing how things are playing out now, it would tell you that he didn't think it was going to go like this. You know, you would guess. He comes in and he says, I've betrayed innocent blood. And it's interesting. He declares Jesus to be innocent. I've never seen this man sin. I know that what he is, you know, being charged for is bogus. I've betrayed innocent blood. The religious rulers really don't have any sympathy for him at all at this time. What is that to us? You take care of it. So he goes and he takes those 30 pieces of silver, and you see in verse 5, he throws it into the temple. Now, the word translated temple is the word naos, N-A-O-S, which means the inner courts. It's the holy of holies. It's not the outer court of the temple. For those of you who know your temple, it's the holy place. Judas was convicted by the sight of the money, and so he's got to get rid of it, right? And that kind of happens sometimes, you know, you're you're remorseful about some sin that you've done. It's like, you've got to get the, <laughs> oh, man, I got to get that stuff out of my house, you know. Verse 5 says that he went out and he hanged himself. Now, Judas dealt with his guilt uh, by killing himself. It's unfortunate that he didn't repent and turn to Jesus. You know, people deal with guilt in various ways. It's probably one of the biggest reasons people seek psychological, psychiatric help is because they're trying to process their guilt somehow or another, right? They don't know what to do with it. Some people bury their guilt. Some people drink it away or try to. Others turn to suicide like Judas. Some are like Peter, though, and they blow it big time. You remember last time he blew it big time. He denied Jesus three times. And he went out, though, and he wept bitterly over his sin, and then he went and repented of his sin, and he turned to Jesus for forgiveness. There's a lot of different ways you can deal with your guilt in life. By far, we should be grateful for the fact that we can go to Jesus, that we can receive forgiveness and cleansing of guilt. In fact, John, 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9, I love this verse. This verse has been called the Christian bar of soap. And it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, in this room today, I could split you guys probably into two categories. 
most likely. And I could say there are those of you in this room that know what it is like to experience the cleansing of Jesus Christ. You've experienced it. And there's some of you that are still trying to deal with your guilt in some other way. I want you to know that that verse in 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there are some people that hold on to their guilt because they don't understand what that word all means right there. Did you see that in 1 John 1, 9? Do you see that very important word there, the word all? There are some people that hold on to their guilt because they don't understand what that word all means. I will tell you, I am no Greek scholar, but I looked it up, and that word means... It means all. <laughs> you say, well, you don't know what I've done. God doesn't, he's not going to forgive me for the things that I've done. This says for all unrighteousness. God will forgive you today for anything that you have done, and he will bring cleansing into your life for anything that you have done. And Judas didn't know that, and he dealt with his sin in a tragic way. When he could have come to Christ, the door was open. Verse 6, it's funny, they say, it's not lawful for the need to be here. Um, It's the price of blood. Now, essentially, that's like saying, you know, Judas came and took this 30 pieces of silver and he came back to the temple and he essentially like put it in the offering box. And then the religious leaders said, get that out of there. We can't have that in here. This is blood money. It's pretty interesting. You know, then they take the money and they go buy a piece of land with it instead. It's pretty interesting that hypocrites are so inconsistent, right? These guys have no problem with spending the money to go put a hit on the guy, but they have a problem when it comes you know, into the church. Like, you got to get that money out of here. You had no problem spending the 30 pieces of silver for murder, but you just don't want to see it either. It's pretty interesting. But that's a good lesson, though. If you're dealing with a hypocrite in your life, they're frequently inconsistent about their convictions, especially a religious hypocrite. They may condemn you for some sort of behavior, and then you watch them do the same exact thing. And it's just like, I just bring that out because it's, it just shouldn't be a mystery. It's just how it is. You know, hypocrites are typically inconsistent. They go out and they buy the potter's field. Now, this was a land, piece of land that, where potters dug for clay. That's why it's called the potter's field. It became later known as the field of blood here, and it's also called akaldama in the book of Acts. That's the Aramaic word for it. You guys remember in Acts it talks about uh, akaldama, the field of blood that was purchased with Judas' blood money. Verse 9 says that then this was fulfilled. So what Matthew is doing is he is quoting from the Old Testament. Do you notice that in verse 9? You probably have a bunch of capital letters in verse 9 and verse 10. Like, as you see them on the screen there, what Matthew's doing is he is quoting from the Old Testament. Now, the reason that he did that was Matthew was trying to show his audience, the Jews that were reading this, that Jesus, all the events around his death and his life are fulfillments of predictions that happened hundreds and thousands of years before. Now, if you're listening and tracking along with me, that should be pretty amazing to you that in the Old Testament, it talked about the literal number, the 30 pieces of silver, right? And it talked about the potter's field in the Old Testament hundreds of years before. And so Jesus is now, the events around his life are fulfilling that. Now, I say that to you because some of you are analytical thinkers. Some of you are like... um, 
you know, you, you like apologetics. You like to think things through rationally. Now, let me, let me just say this to you. If predictions were made thousands of years ago that came true accurately to the T, that would have to tell you that there was something supernatural about that writing from thousands of years before. And I'll tell you, that's one of the reasons that I believe that the Bible is the word of God is because of the fulfilled prophetic element of it. It's one of the reasons. And that's what Matthew is pointing out there. Now, for those of you Bible nerds, you say, well, wait a minute. He says it's from Jeremiah, but really this prophecy is from Zechariah. Well, good job. The reason that that probably is, is because in the Babylonian Talmud, the section of the prophets begins with Jeremiah. And so it was a common thing to refer to them as the books of Jeremiah because he was the first prophet there. So that's most likely why that is. It's actually a combination of two prophecies, one from Zechariah and one from Jeremiah. I want you to go back to verse 3 just for a moment. I'm going to make application before we go to the second part of our outline here. Notice that word remorse. It said that Judas felt remorse. We should note that there is a huge difference between remorse and repentance, right? Big deal, big difference between remorse and repentance. What do I mean by that? When you were a kid and you would get busted stealing cookies out of the cookie jar and you would get caught, were you very sorry because you have violated the trust of your parents and you just walked away from that situation saying, you know, I just, man, the cookies, I mean, they're very tempting, but it's more important to me that my father and mother trust me. I'm never going to do that again. No, you're just sad because of why? Because you got caught. That's what Judas is doing. That's what remorse, a lot of times remorse is just no more than that. I got caught. Repentance is possibly, probably remorse. I've broken God's laws, but I'm making a choice of the will to turn from my sin and to turn towards righteousness. That's the difference, right? Now, having remorse over your sin, it doesn't change anything. You don't get forgiven for having remorse. You get forgiven for repentance and confession, right? And that's a very important distinction. There are a lot of people out there that get convicted all day long. They may even come to church and hear a sermon or a Bible teaching. They may get very convicted and feel, oh man, that's too bad. And then they go and nothing ever changes in their life. And that's not what God has in mind. God has in mind that you hear the message and that you get convicted by the Holy Spirit because he shines the light into your life and you say, wow, thank you, God, for pointing this out. I'm going to churn from this, right? That's his intention. Judas didn't do that. God didn't just call us to feel bad about our sin. He called us to turn from our sin. Now, number two, Jesus before Pontius Pilate, verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, not one word. So the governor marveled greatly. I can see why you would marvel. You know, you're being falsely accused. He knows he's being falsely accused. He says, are you the king of the Jews? It is, as you say, Jesus answers in the affirmative. 
But John, in his gospel account of this, gives us some important details. I'm going to share just a few with you. If you wanted to look there later, John 18, verses 13 through 37. Essentially, in that passage, Jesus says to Pilate, he says, yeah, I'm a king of the Jews, but my kingdom is not political. My kingdom's spiritual. If it was, you know, a worldly kingdom, my people would fight. But he says, I'm a king of a whole different sort. And so you know what happened in that? Pilate said, this guy's not guilty of anything. This guy, and, and you want to get this in your head going, further, going forward in this message, this guy knew Jesus was innocent, okay? Jesus answered not one word. Since Pilate had also declared Jesus' innocence, there was no reason for him to answer these accusations. Now, did you know that this is an exact fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7? Let me read it to you. Now, remember, guys, this goes back 700-so years B.C. And it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 700 years ago before this, or a little more, right around there, a prophet named Isaiah wrote this down and Jesus fulfilled it, right? Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies in his first coming, and there are yet many to be fulfilled in his second coming. Just as sure as the first ones were fulfilled, we're just as sure the second ones are going to be fulfilled. That's why we wait for him. We know he's coming back because the Bible talks about it just as much as talked about his first coming, right? It's a very interesting verse to me. One day, uh, I'll tell you this quickly, but I was praying because I had overheard some gossip and I thought maybe I should repeat it, you know, to somebody because I was going to, you know, I thought maybe it was something that needed to be repeated. I, I was in an office, I was renting an office in an office place and the walls didn't go all the way to the ceiling. They had this gap and, and overhearing people, I just couldn't believe it. And I heard something. And I was like, man, maybe I should tell somebody else. And I was praying and I was praying and I was praying. And I was like, Lord, Lord, help me. Help me know what to do. And this is how the gift of the Holy Spirit works a lot of times. And he just puts this in my mind. And it just Isaiah 53, 7, right? And I open this and it says he opened not his mouth. And I was like, oh, okay, Lord, thank you. <laughs> there we go. And uh, so I never told anybody, you know. But God's good, you know. Be like Jesus. Don't have to defend yourself. Verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. So they're at the Passover festival. Millions of Jews are in the uh, city of Jerusalem, and they had this custom that the Roman government would release one prisoner to them. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that they handed him over because of envy. So Barabbas, Mark 15 tells us why he was notorious. It says that he was a rebel. He was like an insurrectionist and he had committed murder. He was like a religious zealot sort of you know, revolutionary kind of guy, and he had committed murder, and this guy was being held by the Jews. Now, remember, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, and so he's thinking, no doubt, they would be like, oh, release Jesus. Don't release this notorious murderer. 
Plus, Pilate would have figured, do you remember what the crowd said when Jesus just a few days before came into Jerusalem? Do you remember what was happening? What were they saying? Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. And they were praising him. They were saying, God save us. God save us. And everybody was bowing down before Jesus and putting their clothes on the path before him and everything, their coats and palm trees and Palm Sunday was happening. This was just a few days before. And so Pilate's sitting here. He's thinking, well, surely they'll say, don't release Barabbas. And he remembers the, the crowd loves Jesus, right? And so Pilate, knowing the right thing to do, knowing what's right, he's looking to other people to try to do it for him. Verse 18 is really interesting. It says that they released him or they handed him over because of envy. Now, in the church, there are what people sometimes derogatorily refer to as acceptable sins. And, you know, like things like gluttony and, um, you know, they call them acceptable because it's a, it's a bad term. It's saying the church has become really lax about certain types of sins. Uh, gossip. You know, they just, people just, you know, tend to disguise gossip like, oh, it's a prayer request. I just want you to pray for this girl because she's just rotten, you know. And you're like, whoa, dude, you're gossiping all over me. Stop that. Be quiet, you know. Envy would be another one, you know. Like in the heart is what's motivating me is wanting somebody else's stuff, right? And that's become an acceptable sin in the church in America as well. In fact, America is kind of driven on envy. Everybody needs to envy what everybody else has. That's why Instagram causes like mental problems, you know, and all these different things, right? And people want to keep up with the Joneses. Envy is a sin. Do you know another form of envy is just wishing so badly that you had just somebody else's life other than your own? That's also envy, right? It's a terrible sin. It led to the death of Jesus Christ. These guys did not like the fact that people were listening to him rather than them. He was, Jesus was setting people free and they were trying to keep people under their religious uh, business. Verse 19 says, while he was talking about Pilate there, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Now, this dream, it's useless to speculate about what she dreamed, dreamt of, of, but she was troubled. Pilate's wife comes to Pilate and affirms Jesus' innocence. Don't touch this guy. Just let him go. No punishment. I had this dream about it. My conscience is terrible, you know, troubled about what you're doing here. Let him go. And it doesn't affect him enough. You think about Pilate, it's interesting. He's being torn in these different directions. He knows what the right thing is to do. He's got the people. He's got his wife now telling him. But this is just tragic in verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. These religious rulers, they knew that they weren't going to get Pilate to change his mind because he knew what they were all about, just envy. and all this. So what they did was they went and they stirred up the masses Sounds like politicians, doesn't it? Turn a group of people into a hostile group to use them for your purposes. There's a big application in there. You want to watch out for being one of these people that is part of the masses that's being manipulated by evil agenda, right? Because that's certainly happening today. Watch out for being manipulated, being coerced to go with the flow of the group. You need to do the right thing 
even if the right thing isn't popular. I'll tell you what, you young people, you deal with peer pressure in a way that us adults don't anymore. Some of us adults don't deal with that. You know, we've matured out of it somewhat, or, or else we've just gotten too, you know, old to care anymore, you know, what people think, I don't know, whatever. But when you're young, there's this huge pressure on you to try to fit in. And I understand what that's like. I was, I was definitely a teenager at one point in my life, right? My wife will tell you that I still behave like um, it's, it's so important for you to really stop and think, am I doing what I know is right or am I just doing what everybody else is doing, right? Doing what's right may not be popular and you may be lonely for a period of time, but when you get to a point to where your conscience, you skip behind closed doors, you start looking in the mirror, you're going to feel a deep soul level peace. You're going to feel a lot better than if you go with the masses, even though you know what they're doing is wrong. Verse 21, the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, what then should I do with Christ? And they said to him, let him be crucified. Now in the Greek, it's just one word. Crucify. That's it. Then the governor said, more saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us, children. Some of the most foolish words ever uttered in history. You get the scene here? He's standing up in front of all these people. He's calling out, who do you want me to release? We want Barabbas. What do you do with Jesus? Crucify. It reminds us of like the mob mentality of like football, right? Like they're like, defense, <laughs> defense. John tells us that there was a threat going around reporting, of reporting Pilate to Caesar. Now Caesar's like the emperor. And so if Pilate in his jurisdiction has problems going, uh, it's not going to be good for him, right? So Pilate's worried now. He's got this other voice in his mind. He's worried. He's got his wife's voice. He's got his own conscience. He's got the voice of what happens with Caesar. He's got the people chanting. Can you imagine that guy's pressure? So he turns and he says, he washed his hands. And he says, I'm innocent. Pilate's an interesting character, but he's certainly not innocent, right? Declaring that you are not guilty of a sin does not make you innocent of that sin if you commit the sin, right? There are sins that our culture that we live in, they say those aren't sins. They declare, I'm innocent. You know, one that comes right to mind would be abortion, right? Our culture tells us that that's okay. You know, they encourage it. California says, come here and just bring everybody here. We'll do it. We'll do that all the time. Now, listen, if you've been through that before, and I don't want you to feel condemned. I'm not trying to condemn you. You know, God, you know, forgives people for their sin. If you turn to him and you ask for forgiveness and cleansing, he will certainly do that. And you can, you can put that behind you. 
But there are a lot of things where people just say, well, just because I think it's not a sin, I'm innocent of it. And it doesn't work like that. It can happen in relationships. You can say, well, I'm being just how I think I should be in this relationship. You say, well, the Bible says you're being sinful in this relationship. Some people might say, hey, I want to go and smoke weed because it's legal in other states. Well, just because it's legal, it doesn't mean it's not sinful. The Bible says you're not to be involved in pharmakia. The Bible says you're not to be intoxicated, right? Just because you wash your hands of something, it doesn't mean that it's not sin, right? God's the one who determines what sin is, not me or Pilate or anybody else. That's a very important thing to realize. He says, and then the Jews answer back and they say, his blood be on us and our children. Now, sadly, some of that came to pass right away. In AD 70, Jerusalem was completely destroyed by uh, a Roman uh, military and uh, terrible how many Jews died during that time. Uh, What a foolish thing to say. Pilate here is a negative example for us to learn from. Like in the Bible, when you're studying the Bible, you should always be asking yourself, are there examples to learn from, good or bad? He's the example of a negative example of how to learn from him. He knew the right thing to do, and yet because of the motives of his heart, he failed, and he obeyed the crowd rather than his conscience. And even worse, he didn't obey his wife. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but she knew. She knew the right thing. God gave her a dream. God put a dream in her mind and said, go tell your husband about this. And he was a fool. He didn't listen to his wife. You know, and he didn't listen to his own conscience. So he's an example of somebody uh, that you don't want to be like. You want to do the right thing regardless of what anybody else is doing. Then, verse 26, he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Scourging is a terrible punishment. Typically, the Romans did that when they were trying to get the truth out of people, like the third degree. They're like, they've got a witness and they're trying to get him to talk. Brought a picture of a scourge here today. I don't know if it came up. Now, that's an example of a Roman scourge. So you have this handle and you have these um, you know, thongs that come off of it. And they had bone pieces or metal in the end of these leather um, thongs. And so what scourging was, was you would take the prisoner and you would bend them over a barrel and, you know, tie their hands tight. And then they're totally stretched over like this. And then they would take that and they would give them uh, lashes. Now, somebody that was skilled with the scourge could rip off skin to where the kidneys were exposed or the ribs and the organs were totally, you know, back looked like meat when they were done with it. And so they scourge Jesus, first of all, they take him to be scourged. 
And so that would make the cross even all that more unbearable. I mean, you'd be in shock long before you got there, but I mean, you've got this back that's ripped open and your you know, internal organs exposed and um, led away to the cross. Isaiah 53, verse 5, says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That's what it's referring to. It's talking about stripes. It's talking about the whipping, the scourging that Jesus endured. Verse 30 says that they spat on him, but before that in verse 28 it says they put a scarlet robe on him, crown of thorns, and they put a reed in his hand like a scepter. So what they did was they, they put this, uh, the scarlet robe, it would have been like the color of like a king's robe. And so the Roman guards, they took him and they just wanted to mock him. And so they dressed him up like a king and they mashed a wreath into his head that was made of thorns and they put a reed into his hand, and they uh, started just spitting on him and, and uh, making fun of him and everything else. And, and uh, he sat there, and I don't know if you can get the picture of a guy sitting there, you know, with his face down and, and with, you know, in a corner and all these evil people mocking him. And um, as he sits there with this reed in his hand that he could probably only even, maybe not even keep up himself after a while. Then they took the reed from him and they start beating him repeatedly. Uh, with that in the head, Mark tells us that they, they hit him over and over again with that. Verse 30, it says there that they spat on him. In Luke chapter 18, verse 32, this is Jesus talking quite a while before this. He says, talking about himself, Jesus says, For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. Jesus Christ knew that this was coming to him. And he talked about it in the Gospel of Luke. He told him, he says, there's coming a time where these guys are going to mock me and they're going to spit on me and they're going to just, this is going to be terrible. And he knew it. But Jesus kept doing what he was called to do. The Bible says that he set his face to Jerusalem. It said that he had a mission, that he was going to fulfill the calling that he had. He came to this world for a very specific mission. If you don't know what it is, we're going to talk about it here in just a little bit directly affects you. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and from spitting. The amazing accuracy of the prophecies 700 years before in the book of Isaiah. Jesus endured all these things. He, they plucked out his beard pulled skin out of his face, pulled hair out of his face and skin out of his face, plucking his beard out. He says, I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Verse 32 says, they mocked him. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14 reads, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. What Isaiah is saying is his face was so jacked up you didn't even know it was a human. 
Isaiah 53, verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As we hid, as it were, our faces from him, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Because of the known cruelty of the Roman soldiers, he was no doubt beaten to the point where few would have recognized him. Yet he silently bore the unjust treatment, submitting to the will of his father. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 says, who, when he was reviled, talking about Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 31, you know, once their fun was over, they led him away to be crucified. The criminal was led to the scene of the crucifixion by as long a route as possible so that as many as possible might see him and take warning from the grim sight, one scholar says. In other words, the Romans paraded people through the town like this, so you would see this and you'd go, man, don't mess with Rome, right? As he was led away to be crucified, like most of the victims of crucifixion, he was forced to carry the wood that he would hang on. The weight of the entire cross was typically 300 pounds. The victim only carried the crossbar which weighed anywhere from 75 to 125 pounds. When the victim carried the crossbar, he was usually stripped naked and his hands were often tied to the wood. The upright beams of the cross were usually permanently fixed in a visible place outside the city walls beside a major road. And again, it was like an advertising campaign for Rome. Verse 32. Now, as they came out, they're in this procession. Jesus has been scourged. He's carrying this top bar. As they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. It was a narcotic sort of substance, myrrh. Uh, Mark tells us it was myrrh mixed in. And that's a narcotic substance that they would give. And you think, well, that's kind of humane of them. They're giving it to numb the pain. It actually would prolong the whole thing. And it would keep them from you know, going into shock as much. So they would have to endure more of it. It would last longer in that state. And Jesus refused it. And it's likely Jesus refused it because he needed to keep a clear head during these last moments on the cross. You know, these, these amazing statements he makes from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. He's ministering to the thief next to him on the cross, right? And he keeps his mind clear and he endures this thing full force. Now, Simon, interesting guy, right? You're a Jew. You go from Northern Africa where Cyrene was and you're there to visit for the Passover and you're going to celebrate the Passover lamb and you end up carrying the cross for the true Passover lamb. And what an amazing thing. The Romans could make you do that. They could just stop somebody and say, hey, you, pick up his cross and carry it. And this guy knew what it meant to pick up his cross and follow Jesus, right? There is some evidence to suggest that he became a leader in the early church, Mark 15, 21, and Romans 16, 13. You can look at those for homework if you want. It's Mark 15, 21, and Romans 16, 13. Golgotha, synonymous with the Latin word Calvary. Say, so why do we call it Calvary Chapel? That's why. It means a skull. The place outside of Jerusalem that its rock formations somewhat resembled a skull. We're going to stop there today. In conclusion here, just a few things to reflect on, okay? 
You've got Judas. He knew he did the wrong thing. He ended up feeling remorseful, but he failed to repent of his unbelief and come to Christ. And he lost his life. He took his life. He did not respond to the drawing of the Holy Spirit to draw him into forgiveness. You have Pilate here, knew the right thing to do, but didn't do it. Put Jesus to death along with all these Jews. Then you have Jesus who did the right thing, which cost him everything. I want to give two things for you to think about, and one I've already talked about, but I just want to remind you of this because I think this is so important for you here today. Some of you, God brought you here on purpose to hear this. I guarantee it. That you can confess your sins and Jesus will be faithful to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from unrighteousness. You don't have to carry around guilt anymore. You can bring your guilt to Christ and you can be forgiven. You don't have to deal with your guilt in unhealthy ways like Judas did. You can come to Christ today and you can ask for forgiveness and he'll forgive you and cleanse you. The second thing I'd like you to think about I want you to leave here with your eyes upon Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. I'm going to read these to you, and I want, to, I want you to leave here today with your eyes focused upon Jesus. You say, why in the world, you know, would somebody go through this? You know, and the, I'm going to, here, let me put some questions, like I'm going to bomb your brain, okay? For one, why would somebody want to do this? For two, why would some father do this to his son? Okay, so you can wrestle with that all week. You can think about that. And I hope you do. I hope that you, you appreciate this is bizarre, you know? Why would somebody do this? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, now listen, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, That's Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Are you weary and discouraged here today as a Christian? Look unto Jesus, who dealt with all of this because of the joy that was set before him. His heart was motivated by the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? What was the joy that was so compelling to Jesus Christ that he was willing to endure this? It was the joy of redeeming you. It was the joy of saving you. That joy set before him is why Jesus the Christ endured all of this. You say, I don't know if God loves me. I'll tell you that every time God you know, talks about his love for you, he points people to the cross. That is how you know that God loves you is because it says right here, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He did this because he had a joy in, in redeeming you. Because God so loved the world, he sent his son to redeem the world because you're loved by God. That's why. When you read about this, and this is just t terrible and horrible, you say, he did this for me. He loves me. God loves you. God absolutely loves you. And this is what he wants you to see. He wants you to see the cross. He wants you to see his love. The joy of saving you.